think it's fair to say that my family lives in hope. Like, take my seven-year-old son, for example. He lives in hope. Hope that one day he'll be able to endlessly play games on the iPad, as opposed to just the one hour a week that he currently gets. My nine-year-old daughter lives in the hope that one day we'll get her an adorable puppy. My long-suffering wife, Beth, lives in the hope that one day I'll remember to chuck my dirty clothes into the hamper instead of on the floor beside the bed. And me? Well, I live in the perpetual hope that this year the Parramatta Reels will win a premiership. But you see, the thing is, this kind of hope is, is vastly different from the kind we see in the Bible, uh, the kind of hope that God offers. And that's because the kind of hope I, I've just described to you is the wishful thinking kind, the sort with, with no real certainty that any of the things will actually happen. In fact, most of them are rather doubtful, though I really do have a very good feeling about the Eagles this year. But the kind of hope the Bible speaks about is different. It comes with total confidence that the things hoped for will actually come to be. And that makes it a sure and certain hope, a real hope, the sort of hope you can build your life on. But for the Jews back in 700 BC, well, everything was feeling pretty hopeless. They were at that time being held captive by the foreign nation of Babylon far away from their homeland of Israel. But through the prophet Isaiah, God made the amazing promise that one day he would bring them home again. And in doing so, he gave them hope, real hope. Because if God promised it, then they could be confident that it would definitely happen. But it gets even better. Because when we reach Isaiah chapter 42... God makes an even more astonishing promise, one that goes beyond the Jewish people to all the nations of the world. God introduces someone he calls his servant and he tells us some important things about him. In particular, he'll be chosen by God himself and will be someone in whom God delights. He'll be empowered by God's own spirit and his mission will be to bring justice to the nations. Here, read with me Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Chapter 42, verse 1, where God says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So what's the servant's mission? He's going to bring justice, and not just to the Jews, but to all the nations. In fact, this promise of justice will be repeated two more times in today's passage. So we better make sure we understand what it means. Because usually when we hear the word justice, we, we tend to think about uh, judicial fairness, don't we? You know, the idea of, of wrongs in society being made right, like like the, the cry for justice that's behind the protests in America at the moment. But when Isaiah speaks of justice here, he's referring to something that's, that's much, much bigger than that. The justice this servant brings will make all wrongs right. That is, he will restore our fallen world back to God's good design. 
And that means all the brokenness and pain and sin that has, br- be, that has brought into God's creation, has been brought into God's creation, the servant will do away with it forever. He'll bring in a new world order. And I guess that makes this servant a kind of, a, of revolutionary. Of course, other powerful men throughout history have led revolutions, haven't they? Um, often achieving their ends through violence and, and cruelty, you know, the likes of Stalin and Hitler and Idi Amin and Pol Pot, to name a few. But not God's servant. Now, his, his revolution won't come with angry shouts in the street or acts of violence. Rather, his much more powerful revolution will happen gently and quietly. Far from trampling on people to get his way, this servant will have a, a, a particular concern for the weak and the vulnerable. Uh, we're told that he won't even break a bruised reed or, or snuff out a smouldering wick. What is a bruised reed? Well, no, I don't think it's referring to our pastor, Jeff Reed, after a wrestling match with his teenage boys. No, uh, the reed referred to here is the, the tall grass you'll find growing beside a pond. But this reed has been damaged. It, it's, it's bruised and now it's It's drooping hopelessly. But as vulnerable as it is, the servant won't break it. Instead, he'll he'll tenderly bind it up and strengthen it until it can stand tall again. And the smouldering wick? Well, picture a lamp burning its last drop of oil, offering its last feeble flickers, about to surrender to the darkness. But this servant, he he won't snuff it out. Instead, he'll replenish it and and fan it into bright flames again. Do you see the point of these metaphors? The servant's revolution will will, will be characterised by by gentleness and, and compassion. When all else seems lost, he'll restore hope to broken lives. Here, read with me from verse 2. Verse 2. He will not uh, shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. No, this servant won't discard the weak and broken. Instead, he'll come to them with tender compassion and healing. Not that the servant's mission is going to be easy. Now, he'll face all kinds of discouragements and opposition. Yet no matter how hard it gets, no matter what it takes, he won't abandon his mission of establishing justice throughout the earth. He will remain faithful till the very end. And as a result, people all over the world will hear of this servant and his message of good news and their hearts will be filled with hope. Read with me. Halfway through verse 3. Verse 3. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. The islands here is just Isaiah's way of referring to the, the far corners of the earth 
because somehow people from everywhere are going to hear of this servant and put their hope in him and his message. And not just the, the wishful thinking kind of hope that, that, that desires something to happen, but the sure and certain kind of hope that confidently expects something to happen because God, God has promised that it will. I mean, think about that. Think, think about it. Think about what that means for the broken-hearted and dismayed and suffering people of the world, for them to know that through this servant, all the, all the brokenness and pain that sin brings into their lives will eventually be eliminated once and for all. It means that they can now live knowing that, that oppression and corruption will not have the last word, that poverty and hunger and equality will not have the last word, that cancer and dementia and Parkinson's disease will not have the last word, that death and hell will not have the last word. Wow, hey? That makes a world of difference, doesn't it? It means that people can live confidently in the knowledge that that no matter what happens to them now, far better times are sure to come. It's real hope. So let me ask, who do you think this servant is? Any ideas? Well, 700 years passed after Isaiah's prophecy and the Jewish people, now back in their homeland as promised, waited expectantly for this servant, longing for him to come and make things right. And then one night in Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, a baby boy was born. Jesus grew into a man. And at his baptism, I'm sure you'll remember, God's voice from heaven declared, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And then God's spirit descended in the form of a dove. It was just like Isaiah predicted. God putting his spirit on the servant in whom he delights. Jesus came to usher in the ultimate new world order, the kingdom of God. But his revolution was a peaceful and quiet one, marked by compassion and kindness to the, the nobodies of his day, to the, the bruised reeds and smouldering wicks, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the poor, the weak, the despised. And although he faced incredible opposition from Satan and from the religious leaders of the day, Jesus, he never once faltered in his mission. He, no, he was resolute in his determination to fulfil it, even when it led to death on a cross. Because it was there that the blood of this revolution was spilt. As Jesus died to pay for the sins of all people. Rising to life again to offer a place in God's eternal kingdom to all who put their trust in him. An eternity with no more death or mourning or crying or pain. 
just the forever blessings of a loving creator. What hope. What hope. A hope that Jesus offers to everyone, everywhere, as the gospel writers are at pains to point out. In fact, in the 12th chapter of his gospel, Matthew refers back to this very prophecy in Isaiah. And speaking of Jesus, he says, in his name, the nations will put their hope. You see, Jesus is God's servant who brings hope to the world. He brought it 2,000 years ago, And people have continued to find hope in him to this very day. Well, did you hear the one about the Presbyterian minister who walked into a bar? No, it's not a joke. Let me tell you what happened. It's actually a pretty special story to me, so I hope you don't mind if I spend a little bit of time telling it. It was October last year and uh, my family and I were holidaying in Malaysia and uh, we had just arrived in Beth and the kids were feeling the effects of jet lag and they went to bed super early, but I was wide awake and, and, and keen to get out and experience the culture. So, so I went out and, and uh, went out for a wander and at one point I, I saw a restaurant with, with TV, so I went in and ordered a drink. And the guy behind the bar spoke English and then we got into a conversation. As it turned out, this guy, let's call him Ali, Uh, had come to Malaysia two months beforehand. I asked him why he'd come, and to to my shock, he explained that his family were out to kill him. I thought maybe he was a a Christian convert, so I asked him, oh, are you a Christian? To which he replied, no, I'm an atheist. I hate religion, and I hate God. Anyway, I let him rant for some time, before saying, you know, I probably should let you know that I'm actually a Christian pastor, at which he nearly <laughs> fell over backwards. For the next couple of hours in between his serving other customers, I was able to explain to Ali why it is that I believe that there is a God. And he seemed to really resonate with it a lot. As I left, I promised that I'd come back to the restaurant with my family next time and and I invited him to join us at the nearby church on Sunday. A couple of nights later, I took my family back for dinner and again invited Ali to join us at church, uh, and he accepted our invitation. Well, he came and he, and he was most intrigued. Uh, it was the very first time for him to ever hold a Bible or, or hear it explained. We introduced him to the other church leaders, and they, they welcomed him warmly. Please don't expect me to become a Christian, he warned us. I'm very sceptical and I've just spent the last six years working out that there is no God. Of course, everyone assured him that there'd be no pressure, but that he was always welcome to to explore the teachings of Jesus and, and ask us any questions that he had. In our remaining week in Malaysia, we met up several more times with Ali and over that time, we got to hear more of his story. As it turns out, he had grown up in a devout Muslim family in a part of the world dominated by Islam. Uh, His ethnic group of 30 million people is 0% Christian, with no known churches. In his family, Ali was the golden child. He he was 
sent to a, a special Islamic school and, and he memorised the entire Quran at an early age. And that gave him special status. And his father had oh, these high hopes that he would become a prestigious imam or teacher in a mosque. There was only one problem. The more Ali studied the Quran, the more he disliked the God he saw in it. He was filled with fear of death and had absolutely no assurance that he would escape hell. He was also deeply troubled by the inconsistencies he discovered in the Quran. But whenever he asked the imams questions, they just shouted back at him or beat him. To cut a long story short, after six years of Ali's questioning Islam, his father had finally had enough. And he rang Ali one day and cut him to the heart, saying, you are no longer my son. And if I see you again, I will kill you. Ali's entire clan cut him off. And some of his uncles set, set out to, to find him and kill him. And that's why he fled to Malaysia. So there he was with, with no friends, no family, terrified of the authorities discovering that he'd outstayed his visa, lest they deport him back to certain death. Living with, with housemates from his homeland, whom he couldn't tell them he was, he was an atheist, lest they kill him in his sleep. Living with constant panic attacks and overwhelmed with the, the fear of being sent to hell by a God he did not believe in. Naturally, our hearts went out to Ali and in one of our last meetings before he left Malaysia, we, before we left Malaysia, I remember saying to him, Ali, I really, I really want to help you. I just don't know how. And I'll never forget his response. He said, all I really want is hope. All I really want is hope. To which I replied, well, that is the one thing I can give you. I helped him install a Bible app on his phone and, and encouraged him to, to start by reading the Gospels. And he began to, to read voraciously. It was like this thirsty person finding water. And as we, we kept in daily contact with him, even after we returned to Australia, and, and he asked us all these questions about what he was reading. But most of all, he was just, he was just completely amazed by Jesus and his love. Meanwhile, the local church in Malaysia was caring for him too. As the, the months passed, Ali, Ali began to believe in God again. Then he began to pray. His admiration for Jesus grew and grew. But the concept of the Trinity, well, that, that was a hard one for him to grasp. And finally, God overcame even that, that barrier through the teaching of Tim Keller and in January this year, Ali rang us and he said that he was ready to make a vow to Jesus Christ. I tell you sincerely, it was one of the greatest joys of our lives to hear him tearfully repent of his sin and give his life to Jesus.
But since that time, Ali's life has been uh, far from easy. Um, eventually, his housemates suspected that he was a Christian and, and threatened him with death, death uh, if he ever went to church again. But thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic, he was able to, to secretly attend church on Zoom. Now, he's been un unable to, to get a visa and he still can't work legally. And yet, you know, Ali is flourishing. He, his panic attacks are gone and, and, you know, his face, which was once so full of pain, is now radiant. He's been able to move in with some Christian brothers and he's so full of thanks to God because, as he says, now I have hope. Now I know that God loves me and has a plan for my life. I know that I will be with him when I die. Oh, praise God, praise God. The bruised reed we met six months ago is now standing tall. The smouldering wick is blazing brightly. And Jesus has made, it all, has made all the difference. Jesus and the hope that he brings. But you know, that's not the end of Ali's story. Because now, instead of hating Muslims, Ali wants to lovingly share Jesus with them. He's designing an evangelistic Facebook page as we speak, hoping to reach people back in his, his country with the gospel. He recently told us, I think that out of 100, 20 will listen to me. Now, wouldn't that be something? And now, you see, his heart's desire is, is to go to Bible college, that he might get better equipped to reach his people with the gospel. See what hope does? It's not just Ali. I mean, look at Egal Vinda. Another bruised reed, hopeless, imprisoned, addicted to drugs. But someone shared the hope of Jesus with him and now he's spreading that love to people in the streets of Tel Aviv. Again, that is what hope does. And so, friends, let me ask, what about you? You know, Jesus didn't give us this hope so that we could keep it to ourselves. No, it's for all the nations, every ethnic group in the world, including the ones like Ali's, that are still waiting to hear it. Now, not, not, long, not long ago, Ali asked us, um, why has no one told my people this good news if my people knew how great Jesus is, they would want to become Christians. Why has nobody told them? How would you answer that? Friends, let's never ever forget the words of Jesus spoken to his disciples after his resurrection, before he ascended to heaven, where he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. 
and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, friends, it's now our job to share with our world the hope Jesus offers. Now we are called to continue his quiet, compassionate, hope-giving revolution aided by the very same Holy Spirit who empowered him. So will you? Friend, this Mission Month, let let me set you a challenge. I challenge you to be a beacon of hope to the people of this world. And of course, one of the great blessings of our city, of Sydney, is that we are so multicultural, aren't we? The fact is that the nations have come to us. And that means that every day we have opportunities to share the hope of the gospel with people who have never heard it before. So let me encourage you to take a genuine interest in the people that you meet every day, asking about their lives. You know, what, what are their concerns? What, what is their religious background? What, what have they heard about Jesus? And see where God takes the conversation. Perhaps it's the person that serves you at the restaurant or uh, maybe it's your classmate or maybe it's that new mum at playgroup or maybe a co-worker or, or a cleaner or a cafe barista or, or the person next to you on the plane. Now, of course, those encounters won't always yield an Ali or an Egal, but they might. So don't give up. Ask God for opportunities and take them when he sends them your way. But friend, you know what? Here's the thing. As it stands, even if every single Christian in the world shared Jesus with the people they meet every day, the fact is many, many millions of people around the world would still be untouched by the gospel. And that's because these unreached people groups have virtually no access to the gospel. And so the point I want to highlight is this. That's why we have mission partners in places like North Africa and Japan and India and the Middle East. It's why we have mission partners serving in local universities, sharing Jesus with international students. Our 11 mission partners are living as beacons of hope in some of the darkest, most hopeless corners of the globe. And so I want to encourage you to please get behind them, to be as generous as you can this mission month because your investment will bring hope to the hopeless and grow Jesus' kingdom around the world. And let me encourage you to get praying for that too, trusting that God uses our prayers. Here's an interesting fact for you. Did you know that Ali's unreached people group happens to be one that we prayed for during mission month two years ago? I'd never even heard of it before then. Who knows how God will use our prayers this year? And finally, let let me finish by by getting you to consider one more thing, very briefly. You see, I believe that God doesn't just want us supporting and praying for missionaries. 
I believe he wants to send some of us out as missionaries too. Last year, of course, we sent out Elizabeth, didn't we? So who's next? Well, friend, if you feel God is stirring in your heart to serve him cross-culturally, please, please reach out to someone on the ministry team. We'd love to pray with you and we'd love to encourage you as you consider your options. But friends, no matter who we are, like Elliot, like Eagle, let's take hold of the hope Jesus offers and let's do all we can to share it with a world that's waiting to hear. Let's pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your great plan to do something about the brokenness of this world. Thank you for Jesus, your promised servant. Thank you for the mercy and compassion and unconditional love he's shown us. Thank you that because Jesus died and rose again, we now have the sure hope of one day being with you in your heavenly kingdom and without all the pain and suffering and frustration of this world. Father, we pray that as servants of Christ, we would now carry on his mission of bringing hope to the world. This mission month, we ask that you would please give us your heart for the lost. Please help us to give and pray and go. We praise you for the hope you've given to people like Ali and Igal. And we boldly pray for countless more like them. In the name of Jesus, our Saviour, we pray. Amen.